Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's great to see those of you that are here with me in Auditorium 1 and those across the hall in Auditorium 2. And if you're joining us online, welcome. We're glad you're tuning in with us this morning. Take your Bible, and uh, whether it's paper or digital, but find your way to John chapter 21. Now, John 21, we've come to the last chapter in our over a year-long study through the Gospel of John. We got one more message to go after this one to finish up. But John 21 is the epilogue of this great biography of Jesus. John begins with a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where we read about who Jesus was before he came from the Father to save us from our sins. And the Gospel of John ends with this epilogue that shows us what Jesus was like after he died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins and after he was risen from the dead. So we have these two bookends showing us who Jesus uh, was after, before and after his redemptive work was, was completed. Now, in this chapter, we have another clear testimony of the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead. In fact, at the end of this first section in verse 14, we read, this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he rose from the dead. The first time was when he appeared to his disciples behind locked doors and Thomas wasn't uh, present. The second time he appeared to his disciples behind locked doors and Thomas was present. And Matt Densky did a phenomenal job last week uh, helping us walk through uh, Jesus as he relates to Thomas. Well, the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples is right here in John chapter 21. So the main focus of this chapter is that Jesus is alive from the dead. But there's a whole lot more going on here than simply the fact of the resurrection. There are a lot of things going on in this chapter. Because you see, if John ended his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, and that really, when you read 2031, you think, oh, okay, the book is over. But if the, if the gospel of John ended there, there would be some very important questions left unanswered. The first being, what was Jesus like after he rose from the dead? I mean, is he the same or is he different now that he has this new glorified resurrection body and he's about to ascend back into heaven? And uh, again, last week, Densky walked us through Jesus dealing with Thomas, the, one of Jesus' disciples who had serious doubts as to whether he had risen from the dead or not. And when Thomas saw the risen Christ, he declared, my Lord and my God. Jesus is my Lord and my, my God. So now that Jesus is recognized as almighty God, is he different? Is he less personal and more transcendent? And how do we know? Well, we do know that he was somehow physically different because Jesus' resurrected body, his glorified body, which was a physical body that had supernatural properties, his resurrected body could pass through grave clothes. We looked at that. It could pass through walls. It could appear and disappear. So, yeah, his physical body was somehow different. I mean, in fact, no one recognized Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, at first sight. So he, he definitely looked different. But, but what about Jesus himself? Was he different? 
And the first 14 verses of John 21 answers that question. Now let me pull back. The big picture of chapters 20 and 21, the, the last two chapters, the big picture is John is not simply showing us that Jesus has risen from the dead. Again, there's a lot more going on than that. John focuses our attention on how Jesus relates to three different people after he rose from the dead. Now, who are those people that Jesus appeared to that John tells us about? Who was the first one? Mary, Mary Magdalene, second. Thomas, and then Peter. And in those interactions with Jesus, or with his interactions with Mary, Thomas, and Peter, we see what Jesus is like after his resurrection. We learn what Jesus is like in seeing how he deals with three of his closest followers who are weighed down with three different emotional struggles. With Mary Magdalene, we see how Jesus deals with someone who's grieving. With Thomas, we see how Jesus deals with someone who has serious doubts. With Peter, that we're gonna look at here in John 21, we're gonna see how Jesus relates to somebody who has failed and failed big time. And the big idea is that none of these people's past get in the way of Jesus' loving care for them. Jesus meets us in our grief, he meets us in our doubt, and he meets us in our failures. And what we see in these three uh, personal interactions is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as the author of Hebrews puts it. The resurrected Jesus is not some detached, ethereal being who is now so caught up with running the business of the universe that he doesn't have time for you. No, Jesus is just as personal, just as caring, just as full of grace and truth as he's, as he's always been, and that's what these three personal interactions show us about Jesus. Now, just push pause for a second. As I said, there are lots of different lessons here, and John had many, many stories that he could draw from to tell us about who Jesus is and why he came and what it looks like to trust and follow him. And, and he even actually tells us that. Look down in chapter 21, verse 25, all the way to the end of the chapter, last verse, John says, now, I could have told you a lot of other things. I could have told you a lot of other stories because there's many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written about Jesus. So, so if that's true, why did John choose to end his book by telling us these three stories about Jesus meeting with these three different disciples? Well, this answer is simple. It's because these stories have important lessons for us to learn. Now, um, one lesson I want to point out to you here, which is really not a part of the big idea of my message. In fact, this is kind of like, I, I couldn't decide like which way to go with this message, so I decided to preach both of them, all right? So this is like a double header message, all right? So, but one of the big lessons here is this, and it's so important. We come to know who Jesus is in other people's stories of grace. We come to know who Jesus is, we come to know him more fully as we learn about other people's stories. Different people bring out different sides of Jesus, different people's struggles, different people's experiences with Jesus show us different sides of Jesus. Think about it this way. Imagine if you were in a community group with Mary and Thomas and Peter. I mean, can you imagine being in a group like that? And let's say that you were raised in a Christian home and you never really struggled with some of the things that so many Christians have struggled with in their past. So think, 
How would you know how Jesus deals with people with checkered pasts? How would you know how Jesus deals with someone who has overcome with grief? How would you know how Jesus deals with someone who has serious doubts about the faith? How would you know how Jesus deals with someone who's failed big time? And then how would you know how Jesus relates to someone who's failed big time and they know that God has forgiven them, but they can't forgive themselves? Well, you wouldn't know those things unless you had personally experienced it or unless you learned about it from people who had personally experienced those things and they shared their story of grace with you. You follow me here? I mean, it's just like the baptism stories we heard this morning. Wasn't your heart moved to hear those stories of grace? I know more about my Lord. I know more about my Savior and how he works with people after hearing these stories. So being with Mary's and Thomas's and Peter shows you Jesus in a way that you can never know by know him by yourself. There's a place where uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book on friendship. Uh, it's, the book is entitled The Four Loves. And C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who's the author of The Lord of the Rings, and another author named Charles Williams, they were great friends and they would meet together at a local pub in Oxford uh, and to discuss the stories they were writing and all kinds of other things as well. And they called their little group The Inklings. And these three men, like I said, were great friends, and they called C.S. Lewis Jack, and they called Tolkien Ronald, and they called Charles Fred. No, they didn't. Uh, I, just, I can't just, I just, Charles, they called Charles, but everybody else had a different name, so I don't, I don't quite understand that. But anyway, Charles died, and when Charles died, C.S. Lewis, Jack, thought to himself, well, I still have Ronald, and I, I suppose I have more of, I'll have more of Ronald. But then Lewis, Jack, realized that there was a part of Ronald that only Charles brought out. And now that part was lost forever. And in his book, he, he, he puts it this way. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. And now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to one of Charles' jokes. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In other words, what he's saying is that Charles knew Ronald in a way that Jack didn't and in a way that Jack couldn't. Now, if that's true of human beings, how much more true would that be of Jesus? So, in reading these three stories, Mary, Thomas, and Peter, it shows us something about Jesus that I might not otherwise see unless I know their stories of grace. Let me put it this way. You, you will never know the multidimensional glory and beauty of your Savior unless you know him in community. You'll never know the multidimensional glory and grace and beauty of your Savior unless you know him in community. In other words, you need to be in a community with several other people who personally know the grace of Jesus, people who are different from you, people with different grace stories than you, in order to know Jesus in all of his fullness. You gotta know them more fully to know him more fully. Now, so, so, so by the way, who are those people for you? Who are the Marys in your life? Who are the Thomases in your life? Who are the Peters 
in your life, people who are helping you know Jesus in ways that you could never know him by yourself. Who would that group of people be for you? And listen, if you're not in a community group or a small group of some, some kind where you're meeting together regularly with people who are passionately pursuing life and mission with Jesus, I'm, I'm just here to tell you, you're missing out. You're missing out on knowing Jesus in his multi-dimensional glory and grace and his beauty. Okay, that's just one big picture lesson we can mine out of these three stories. That's my first sermon of the double header. All right, so now, um, we've already looked at Jesus' meeting with Mary Magdalene and so-called Doubting Thomas, and if you missed those messages, I encourage you to go back and uh, watch them or listen to them. They're on YouTube, or you can download them from our website. They're on our app. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus relates to Peter. In other words, how Jesus relates to someone who has failed big time. Because this is important. Um, some of us wonder if some past failure has consigned us to uh, a certain destiny. Like uh, maybe you took the easy way out. Or, or you said no when you should have said yes or you said yes when you should have said no, or you made a promise to yourself or to someone else or to God and then you broke that promise. And, 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 and so the question is, has that failure sealed your fate? Does that past failure determine your destiny? And I regularly talk with people who've done something wrong and I mean, they, they knew it was wrong at the time they did it, but they did it anyway. And now, it's something that they're ashamed of, and that, that, that failure still haunts them. Does some past failure dangle in your mind like, like, a, like a loose thread? If so, John 21 is for you. And the story of Jesus and Peter in John 21, it breaks into two parts. The first part is in the first 14 verses, and it addresses the question of whether Jesus... Uh, loves Peter after Peter's failures. And there's more than one, as I'm going to show you today. And second, in, uh, in verses 15 to 23, which we'll look at next week, it addresses the question of whether Peter loves Jesus. So let's jump in and follow along as I read the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, but they're left unnamed, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got in the boat. And that night they fished all night and they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some there. So they cast it and wow, they, now they were not able to haul it in because of the, the quantity of the fish. Now the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far off from land, but, but about 100 yards off. 
And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Peter went aboard the boat and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now, the disciples, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they all knew it was Jesus. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this is the word of God for the people of God. Now, the scene has shifted from Jerusalem to the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee, the place where Jesus first, where he called his first disciples. And seven of these disciples are together. Six of them were there with him at the beginning. But there's, he, he only names certain disciples. Like he doesn't name James and John. Like why not? Well, there's something in the backgrounds of the named disciples that are, that's kind of interesting. Because we have Peter the failure. After Jesus was betrayed and arrested, we know that Peter denied knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crowed out of fear that he too would be arrested. And then there's Thomas the doubter at the end of Jesus' ministry and Nathaniel who was a doubter at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But both those men moved through their doubt and made amazing professions of faith. And so for Thomas and Nathaniel, the loose ends of failure have been tied up. But for Simon Peter, the loose end is still dangling in his mind. And just as Jesus appeared to all the disciples but came specifically to talk to Thomas in John 20, John gives us the impression that in this appearance, Jesus comes specifically for Peter. Now, Jesus will meet Peter in the place where they first met, the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in this story, Jesus is going to take uh, a past events in Peter's life and he's going to connect them to Peter's present presence. And there's, there's a powerful uh, lesson in this. Now, Matthew tells us that when Jesus appeared to his disciples the first time, when they were in Jerusalem, Jesus told them to go to Galilee and wait for him. About a hundred mile walk from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem to Galilee. He told them to wait for him on a specific mountain. You see that in Matthew 28, verse 10 and verse 16. And he says, go wait for me on the mountain and I'll come to you there. Now, we don't know exactly which mountain that was. It could be the mountain where the Sermon on the Mount took place. I've been there and that mountain slopes down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Could be that mountain. We don't know for sure and it really doesn't matter. The problem is, as the story begins, they're not on the mountain waiting for Jesus. Seven of them are down on the lake fishing. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking that they've been waiting for Jesus to show up. But I don't know if you ever had this experience, but like God didn't come through for you as quickly as you think that he ought to, or is it like you think, like you expect him to. So Peter, Peter, we know Peter, right? I mean, he, he, he speaks first. He has a foot-shaped mouth. Um, he speaks first, he acts first, he's impulsive. So he says, verse three, I'm going fishing. And the rest say to him, okay, we'll go with you. And they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, I think Peter is tired of waiting. 
He's got to do something. He can't sit around all day long, all night long, waiting for Jesus to show up. He's got to be busy. He's got to do something. And besides, yeah, Jesus told all the disciples to wait for him on the mountain, but he didn't give them any instructions. So they have no idea what's coming or what the future is going to be like. And so Peter, he knows fishing. He doesn't know what Jesus is going to tell him. He knows fishing, so he goes fishing. Now, I'm thinking that he's not thinking Forget all this Jesus stuff. I'm going back to my old life. Now, I mean, I, I know that's a popular way to understand this passage. I just don't think that's true. I mean, he's seen Jesus alive from the dead, for goodness sakes. He knows Jesus is alive. In fact, we are told twice, once in Luke 24 and the second time in 1 Corinthians 15, that on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus had appeared to Peter, just the two of them. And we don't know anything about what happened in that meeting, but Peter has already spent time with the risen Christ before the meeting here in John 21. And I'm thinking that as a result of that meeting, Peter knows that Jesus has forgiven him of his failure. And the, I'm going to tell you why I believe that in just a minute as we go on in the passage. But so, so Peter's not ready to give up on Jesus. He's just tired of waiting. I think it's more like, he, he, he had to do something, so he went fishing, and, and, and everybody, else, or the, another six of them, followed him down there. Now, again, you know that feeling, right? I mean, you've prayed about something over and over and over. No answer has come, and so you're done waiting, and, you're, and you strike out on your own to make something happen. Like maybe you wanted your marriage to be different, more oneness, more love. You wanted more fulfillment but nothing ever changed so you decided to ignore what God said and about marriage and you called it quits or or maybe you desperately wanted to be married but no prospects came along and so you ignore what God says about sex outside of marriage and you end up living with some guy or gal hoping to kill the loneliness inside or maybe you're waiting for God to do something with that job you hate but nothing's changed, and instead of waiting for another job to come along, you decide to quit with no job prospect, and you're thinking, now God has to come through for me. Well, let me just say, no, he doesn't. Or else, it's, it could be something else like that. The point is, you know what God's told you to do. You're waiting for God to come through with his end of the bargain, but he doesn't, and at some point, you get tired of waiting, and you strike out on your own. That's Peter, and that is disobedience, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said, go to Galilee and wait for me on the mountain, and Peter and six others head for the lake to go fishing. I'm thinking the other four are still up on the mountain. Maybe fishing wasn't their thing, whatever. But as I said, Peter knows, knows fishing, and so Peter goes fishing. And they fish all night long, and they don't catch anything, not even a cold. Now, moral of the story so far, when you strike on on your own, don't be surprised if you strike out. <laughs> and when you strike out on your own, don't be surprised that if you strike out. That's Peter. He's failed again. Failure's becoming kind of a pattern here. So Jesus is going to come to Peter in a unique, unique way, in a way that Peter will understand, and hopefully in a way that we can understand more about Jesus from the way Jesus gives grace to Peter. Now, by the way, to be haunted by a past failure doesn't mean you're thinking about it all the time. 
To be haunted by a past failure means to be reminded of it from time to time. You, you live your life, and let's say you go fishing if you're a fisherman, and something happens that reminds you of a past failure, and sometimes a failure in, a, in the present, like you don't catch any fish, triggers the memory of a past failure. Or you're listening to a sermon, and that blasted preacher makes you remember some past failure you wish you could forget. So the question is, though, when, when the memory of failure comes to the surface, what do you do? Well, so look at what Peter does. Verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They said, no. He said, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So it's early in the morning, and Jesus appears on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 100 yards away from where the boat is that all the guys are on. They don't recognize Jesus. Why not? Well, it's still early in the morning. It's kind of dark. They're 100 yards out from shore. Plus, nobody recognized Jesus in his resurrected body anyway at first. So I picture these disciples. They're all, the boat is like dead in the water. The sail's down. They're just out there. And, you know, uh, they're sprawled out all over the the boat and they're sleeping or half asleep, worn out from fishing all night long, very discouraged. And now they hear some guy on the shore yelling at them. And so they get up and they're wiping their eyes and shaking the cobwebs out of their heads. And what they hear is this. They hear the guy on, the guy on shore say, hey guys, you haven't caught any fish, have you? That's the Greek. That's the, what it, how it should be translated. Hey, guys, it's not uh, little children, my dear children. It's not, hey, friends. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a term of endearment. It's just guys. That's what the Greek word means. Guys, you haven't caught any fish, have you? It's kind of a dig. Exact, not exactly, but kind of like, what do you think you're doing out there anyway? I mean, I told you to wait for me on the mountain and you ignore me. And you think you're going to catch a boatload of fish? Well, they, they wouldn't have heard it that way because they, they, they didn't know it was Jesus. But it's, it's kind of like got that, that kind of thought behind the tone of it. And, of course, this is not a question that Jesus doesn't know the answer to. Of course, he knows they haven't caught any fish. But he asked the question this way because the disciples, and specifically Peter, need to answer the question. They need to admit that they failed. And so they, they shout back, no, no, we didn't catch a thing. Now, how do you think Peter feels about being asked how his fishing expedition went? I mean, the last thing a fisherman who hasn't caught any fish wants to be asked is if he caught any fish. I know this from personal experience. But Jesus wants Peter to admit failure. And I'm, I'm sure that Thomas or somebody in the boat said, I told you we should have stayed on the mountain and waited for Jesus. I mean, there's always one of those in the bunch, right? So, so Peter failed before when he disowned Jesus. He's failed again by disobeying Jesus, and he needs to admit it. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus is that one of his favorite times for showing up in our lives is in the aftershock of failure. Because if we're humble enough to admit it, and if we're wise enough to not excuse it, we're more prepared to meet Jesus in those times. Like when we fail and we are willing to admit it, we're more likely to recognize our need for grace 
and we're more likely to be open to whatever help that Jesus offers. And sometimes when we fail, Jesus calls to us from the shore, so to speak. At first, like Peter, you might not recognize it's Jesus, but Jesus comes to meet you in your failure. He comes not to beat you up, but to lift you up. However, to experience the grace of Jesus in your failure, you have to recognize your need for grace. Now, you see, Jesus isn't surprised when we fail. He's not like, I can't even believe you did that. No, he simply wants you to admit your failure, confess your sin, repent of the sin. He wants you to recognize that this is where your impatience and your disobedience has led you. It led to failure. But if we, if we are humble enough to admit it, we're then more open to whatever help Jesus offers, even if it comes from a stranger on shore. So at this point, the strange mystery man on the beach shouts back, to the guys in the boat, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish waiting for you. And for some strange reason, and you know fishermen don't like to take advice from other fishermen necessarily, but for some strange reason, they do what the mystery man says. I guess they're thinking, what do we got to lose? Let's give it a shot. So verse six, they cast the net on the right side of the boat and oh my goodness, there were so many fish in the net that they were struggling to haul it in. Now, does that story ring a bell? Where have you heard a story like that before? Does that story trigger a memory of a past event in Peter's life? Well, if you know your Bible, it should, and it's a story that comes from Luke chapter five. Listen as I read this story from the early days of Peter's life with Jesus. On one occasion, when the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. All right, and when he saw two boats by the lake, uh, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, they were washing their nets, and so he got into one of them, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep, deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon said, Master, we, we, we toiled all night and we didn't catch anything. But at your word, and I don't know why we're listening to a carpenter like who's never fished a day in his life, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the boats to come and help them and they, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinful man. I'm not, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left their boats, they left their nets, and they followed him. You see it? It's deja vu all over again. <laughs> Except this time, Jesus isn't in the boat with them. He's on the shore calling to them. And of course, of course, they don't know it's Jesus. But what's ju what just has happened has triggered a deja vu memory in John's mind. 
John chapter 21, verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. In other words, now you know that this is the same Jesus. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's performing another fishing miracle for these guys very much like he did at the beginning of his relationship with them. And John gets it. Verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he got it too. And he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now, again, you expect this from Peter, right? He's not thinking. He's just acting. He doesn't really think about it. He grabs his coat, puts it on, jumps overboard, and starts swimming 100 yards to shore. So I wonder how long it took, how far he swam before he thought, man, I really should have left my coat in the boat. I mean, you ever try to swim in an overcoat? Yeah, not, not a happy thing to do. But anyway, the other disciples, verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about 100 yards off. Something has radically changed in Peter. I mean, this guy has gone from, Lord, I'm a sinful man, depart from me. And now he can't get to Jesus fast enough. He has experienced, I believe he's experienced the forgiving grace of Jesus. And I love how eager he is to get to Jesus, to be near his Lord. It's almost like these guys got caught with their hand in the cookie jar and Peter is glad he got found out. He wants to get to, he did love Jesus. He knew his failures, he knew his frailty, he knew his weakness, and he couldn't get to Jesus fast enough. He wants forgiveness, a fresh experience of forgiveness, which he gets this week, and he wants to be restored, which we'll look at next week. Verse 9, when they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish, some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of a large fish, which would be about two pounds apiece for this particular kind of fish. And uh, there were 153 of them. And although there were so many the nets weren't torn. So Peter beats the boat back to shore, but when the boat arrives, Jesus says, hey, bring some of those fish that you guys have caught, and we'll add those to the fire. And so Peter goes back to the boat where the other six guys are struggling to get all of these 153 fish to shore. By the way, why this seeming insignificant detail that there were 153 fish? Because that... many, many scholars think this is a symbolic number. Scholars throughout church history have said, well, at at that time, uh, ancient people believed there were 153 categories of fish, and and then some of them say, well, there were 153 bishops in the early church at this time, and so somehow uh, it's just garbage stuff. But anyway, no, this is an eyewitness detail. John says there were 153 fish because that's how many fish there were, 153. Like, speaking from experience, I know exactly how many fish I caught on my last hiking and fishing trip to the Holy Cross Wilderness of Colorado. That week, all the guys caught 81 fish, and I caught 27 of them. And you better believe I remember those numbers. So, so... So Peter, he goes back to the boat, and he puts his back into it, 
And basically it says, Peter hauled the net ashore. That's 153 fish times two pounds apiece, over 300 pounds of fish, and, and Peter manhandles the net and gets it up on shore. By the way, uh, I've eaten those fish. This is what they look like. If you go to Israel, we'll, there's a place that we go to eat these. They're called St. Peter's fish, and they look at you when they're eaten, and uh, they're okay. The second time I went, I just got a slice of pizza, but... Uh, but uh, hey, you know what? I ate a St. Peter's fish. You know, like I, I can say that from now on. But anyway, verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Isn't that a strange thing to like drop into this story? Like, isn't that weird? None of the disciples dared to ask him, who, you, who are you? And they just knew it was the Lord. What about that? I mean, could it mean that Jesus really did look different than he did before his resurrection, but they knew it was Jesus because he had not changed. His nature had not changed. And so Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. So the first deja vu moment was in casting the net after a long night of fishing but coming up empty-handed. Now the second deja vu moment is here on the beach cooking breakfast over a charcoal fire. The only other time that John references a charcoal fire is when on the night in which Jesus was betra- uh, Peter was betrayed, excuse me, Jesus, <laughs> on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Peter st- was standing outside where the trial was going on and he denied knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. That night, John tells us specifically, he didn't just say Peter was warming himself by the fire. He tells us that Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire. And now Peter comes to the beach and John drops that word in. This is not coincidence. This is intentional. Jesus is cooking Peter's breakfast over the charcoal fire of his failure. For Peter, there's no doubt in my mind, the charcoal fire sparked the memory of his failure. He knew he was forgiven, but he's still haunted by the failure. And Jesus and Peter, get this, are enjoying fellowship in the place of Peter's failure. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And I, I, there's, that's just so normal. And I tell you, when I was studying this, every time I'd get to this, I'd kind of go, I read, and I even said it out loud a couple times, come and have breakfast. And I'm like, you know, like, it's, it's just so, so soothing. And Jesus says to these guys who walked off the mountain where they were supposed to be waiting for him, and they headed off to go fishing, he says, come, let's eat breakfast. He doesn't say, come and let me explain to you why it took me so long to get here. He doesn't say, come, let's talk about why you didn't wait for me. He doesn't say, come, let's talk about this resurrected body of mine. I got, this will be a really interesting science lesson for you. No, he says, come have breakfast, which as many of you know, that to share a meal is the number, way, number one way people enjoyed fellowship with one another back in Jesus' day. Now, the key is this. Peter's failure to wait is reminiscent of his failure to live up to his promise to lay down his life for Jesus. Then the charcoal fire takes him right back to the scene of his failure. 
but Jesus turns both failures upside down. So yeah, it's deja vu all over again, but Jesus turns the burning agony of failure into the warm glow of fellowship. This is the place where Peter failed, the charcoal fire, and this is the place from which Jesus nourishes Peter. So John picks up these two strands from Peter's past, first the fishing miracle in Luke 5, and then Peter's failures, and he weaves them together into Peter's present. Why? To assure Peter that his failure doesn't disqualify him from fellowship with his Lord, and to assure him that his past failures have not determined his future destiny. I mean, isn't that good? So what does this story teach us about the unchanging nature of our risen Savior? Well, um, remember what I said back at the beginning. I said that we come to know who Jesus is more fully in, the, in other people's stories of grace. And here in John 21, we come to know Jesus more fully by seeing how he deals with Peter's failure, how gracious he is. And this, and this is just the first part of the story. Next week, it gets even better. But here we see that we come to know who Jesus is in the stories of grace that come out of our failures. We come to know who Jesus is in the stories of grace that come out of our failures. Seeing how gentle and kind and caring and loving and wise Jesus is with Peter helps us understand that when we fail, we will find in Jesus the same love and care as Peter did but only if we run to Jesus as Peter did. Is there a charcoal fire in your life that still burns in your memory? Did you take the easy way out? Did you say no when you should have said yes, or did you say yes when you should have said no? Did you break a promise did you admit the failure? Did you confess it and repent of it, but the loose end of that failure still dangles in your memory from time to time? The good news is Jesus wants to meet you in that memory. Listen, failure is only a part of your story. It's not the whole story. And it doesn't consign you to a plan B future. See, okay, but how, how does Jesus deal with our memories of failure? Well, first of all, he doesn't run from our failures. He comes to us in our failures. In fact, he's waiting for you there. He's waiting for you to cast yourself on him and join him on the beach. He doesn't want to beat you up. He doesn't want to lecture you. He doesn't want to tell you, I told you so. He doesn't get flustered and frustrated with you when you fail. He doesn't scold, and he doesn't shame. No, when we come to him with the haunting memories of past sins and failures, he meets us there, and he wants to heal those memories and transform those memories into new memories of deep, satisfying fellowship with him. That's the whole point. It's what he came to do. 
he experienced the horror of death and came out the other side in order to provide us with a limitless supply of mercy and grace. So when we fail, when we sin, he's there on the beach waiting. He, he just wants to share a meal with you. He wants to break bread with you in the place of your brokenness. And there in the place of your failure, Jesus offers himself to you as the bread of life. He offers you himself. After all, his body was broken for you for such a time as this. So the place of failure then becomes the place of deep and restorative fellowship with him. Now here's the point. If you meet with Jesus in this way, he'll give you a new memory, a memory of how he met you in your failure, which will become your personal story of grace. Think about it. Do you think Peter ever forgot the breakfast he shared on the beach with Jesus? Do you think that when those haunting memories came back later on, he didn't think back and think, nope, there was another charcoal fire where I felt loved and accepted and welcomed by Jesus. Jesus transforms our failures into places of fellowship so that you're no longer haunted by the memory of that failure. The charcoal fire no longer burns in your conscience with memories of failure, but instead it warms your heart with a new memory of the forgiving love and grace of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus heals our memories. And maybe even today, through this story, Jesus is meeting with you. And today will become a new memory for you. But he doesn't just heal our emotions and our memories. He transforms them. That loose end of failure that's dangling in your mind, Jesus ties it up. How does he do that? By transforming our failures into places of deep, satisfying fellowship. I mean, imagine sharing a meal with Jesus in the same place you failed him. The place of failure, Jesus transforms the places of failure into places of fellowship if we'll let him. I wonder, would you let him love you there? John has shown us that in the resurrection of Jesus, a new day has dawned. And yes, the risen Jesus was physically different from the Jesus those disciples knew prior to his death and resurrection, but Jesus is the same. He's just as personal as he ever was. Being back in the form of God, he's not distant. He's still up close and personal. His heart is is the same, very much the same. He is still gentle and lowly. He is still patient and, com- and compassionate and kind. He still washes our feet and serves us meals, just like in the days he walked this earth. So it's time for some of you to forget about broken promises and crowing roosters and betrayals in the night. It's time to admit where you failed, and if needed, you need to try to make those things right with anybody you hurt when you failed. It's time to let those haunting memories of failure go, because it's a new day, and dawn is breaking, and Jesus is 
standing on the shore. The charcoal fire of fellowship is burning, and the fish have been laid on it. The bread is warm. The table is set. And Jesus' invitation to you and to me is, come, let's have breakfast. Come, let's have breakfast. Let me take your failures and transform them into places of deep, satisfying fellowship with me. Mm. Father God, thank you so much that, that by your Holy Spirit, you led John to record this story so that 2,000 years later, we would know more fully who Jesus is and what he's really like in Peter's story. I thank you for the stories we've heard today and the baptisms and the ones that are to come. I thank you how in these stories of grace we see how people, how you came and, 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 and manifested yourself to people who were lost and discouraged and lonely and you met them in those places and you brought them to, into new relationship with you, into that deep, satisfying fellowship. So God, I pray that as we go from this place, that we would carry this amazing, amazing gospel message of the forgiving grace with us. And would you give us opportunities that we could sh share our personal story of grace with someone this week? Lots of people, they need to hear, they need to hear this good news. God, give us opportunities to be a Mary or a Thomas or Peter to someone else in this, in this week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.